Welcome to the Highway Hi-Fi Podcast, where we scour our vinyl collections to bring you great songs by unknown artists and unknown songs by great artists. I'm Joe. And I'm Ryan. And you found the internet's finest source of music. But before we get into that, how about a little bit of trivia? Alright, I'm going to start off the trivia today. This uh, segment harkens back to an acquaintance of Joe and I, a guy we're going to call Ted. Ted was an interesting fellow. We used to work with him, and he would do this thing where he would make you pick between two things. So it would be Beatles or Stones, Joe. Beatles or Stones. Uh, Kinks or Who, Joe. JFK, MLK. Jack, uh, Jack Kirby, Stan Lee. So he would always make you pick which one's better. So in the spirit of Ted, uh, this quiz is called Beatles Stones, Kinks or Who. So I'm going to name a solo album, and I think I'm going to give you the year two, because these are no classics. And you need to tell me which band this solo artist was part of. Okay? Okay. Was it a Beatle, a Stone, a Kink, or a Who? Okay. All right. 1975, the name of the album is Two Sides of the Moon. The Who. Correct. It was Keith Moon. Very good. Uh, The next one is a 1971 record, The Pipes of Pan at Jajuka. I'm going to go Who on that one. That was The Stones. That was a uh, Brian Jones record. He went out and recorded some field music. Kind of weird. Anyways. All right. 1974, Walls and Bridges. Beatles. Correct. That was John Lennon. 1989, Iron Man the Musical. The Who. That's correct. Very good. You're, you're rocking this quiz. That was Pete Townsend starting the tradition of making horrible musics about musicals about superheroes. All right. Uh, Kisses on the Bottom. That was 2012. Kinks. That was The Beatles. That was a Paul McCartney record. Oh, okay. Forgot about that one. You and the rest of humanity. The album that never was. 1987 record. Kinks. Very good. That was Dave Davies, and somebody put together like some of his early demos or the, what, what an album of Dave Davies songs would have been like, which is kind of cool. Goodnight Vienna, 74. Beatles. Very good. That was a Ringo record. The Wheels on the Bus soundtrack, 2005. Rolling Stones. That was The Who. That was Roger Daltrey singing children's songs. Not something you need to hear. Okay. 1992, Main Offender. Rolling Stones. Very good. That was Keith Richards' record. Working Man's Cafe, 2002. Kinks. Very good. Ray Davies' record. Smash Your Head Against the Wall, 71. The Who. Very good. That was a John Entwistle record. I actually have that one. It's, it's pretty good, actually. Yeah? Yeah. Uh, She's the Boss, 85. Rolling Stones. Very good. Mick Jagger. Uh, Maple Oak. What year? 71. Kinks. Very good. That was the Peter, uh, what's his name? Quaif. Peter mm-hmm. Quaff. It was, the guy, uh, he, the guy he, who passed, he passed away, what, two years yeah, ago? Yeah, he did. It, okay. uh, and apparently it was kind of, I haven't heard it, it was apparently kind of like a, he started a kind of country rock band. So mm-hmm. it probably might be worth checking out. Maple Oak. Yeah. All right, and the last one, 
1969 electronic music. The Who? That was the Beatles. That was a George Harrison record right after he got a Moog synthesizer, which we're going to talk oh, about a little bit. I didn't so I didn't know he, I did, before I researched, I didn't know he put out a solo album while the Beatles were still together, sort of. So anyways, that, that's my quiz. You did fantastic on that. You did really way better than I would have. So uh, I think I'll just kind of start where you're sort of finished. And mine is going to be called, it's an audio quiz, and mine will be called Dark Side of the Moog. I mean, Moog. <laughs> Um, <laughs> and what I'm going to do is I'm just going to play it's a real, real nice and easy one I'm going to play five clips the clips are all themes from TV shows ooh I like TV that's all you have to do is just name the TV show okay alright here we go Stranger Things no not that not anymore uh, alright here we go track one There's no theme. Pretty basic. Uh, I think two of them are really easy. Another one I think is is also pretty simple. I hope I hope for our, our listeners out there, our listener out there, that all of those are pretty good. And I think two of them are going to be really tough. Yeah, I'm I'm confident on two. Pretty confident on a third. The other two, I'll I'll have to guess when I hear them again. But uh, okay, okay. All right, that was some groovy tunes. Is it time for turntable talk? I think it is. Let's do it. Everybody is talking at me I don't hear a word they're saying Only the echoes of my mind It's my turn, Table Talk, and today we're going to talk about Bob Moog, the pioneer of the music industry and uh, just an undisputed genius of electronic music in general. His name is pronounced Moog, uh, rhymes with rogue or vogue, 
but it's so often called Moog that it's it's pretty much interchangeable. It's you know he 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 preferred Moog, but I'll probably go back and forth saying Moog and Moog. Um, so go ahead and forgive me now for that, but know that he did per, uh, prefer the original, I think, German Moog. Like I said, he, he changed the course uh, in the sound of music, especially from the mid-1960s and beyond. Uh, he really had a huge part in making electronic music more accessible and really more cool, especially with the creation of his synthesizer. Uh, he was a, an electronic engineer by trade, but he considered himself a tool maker. What he would do is develop these tools for musicians, and he loved working with musicians. And one of the great things about him is he was constantly tweaking his his product, his invention, with input from the people who are using it, it constantly throughout his career, which I think is pretty cool. He didn't just put out something and used it. He really adapted it and changed it and, and found great ways to make it more useful and, and lift it to greater heights. The Moog sound is revered for being you know, having a distinct electronic sound, but also kind of warm. And I think that before synthesizers were kind of, you know, they would just kind of copy styles and they just would sound not as intimate, I guess you could say. So his his products have a lot of flexibility, but also a sort of uniqueness about them. So I'll tell you a little bit about him and where his sound kind of comes from. He was born Robert Arthur Moog. Uh, in the Bronx. He was the son of an electronic uh, electronics engineer. Uh, that was his father, and his mom was a piano teacher, which is a pretty good mix for what he would become. Even though he's known for the synthesizer, he really started his journey with uh, the theremin. So we're going to talk a little bit about the theremin. The theremin was created by uh, a Soviet dude named Leon Theremin in the 20s. It was originally called the Etherphone, and it's a super cool instrument, and I happen to be kind of a uh, hobby thereminist. I do have one, a Moog, but it's an electronic instrument that's very unique in how you play it and the sound it makes. You play it without actually touching the instrument, so you've probably seen this if you like music. It's not like this, like this weird, rare thing, but players use the proximity of their hands and the movement of their hands in relation to a couple of antenna to control the pitch and the amplitude, which is volume. And so it's the only instrument that I know of where you don't actually touch it to play it. And the other weird thing is every person has to tune it to themselves. Like you, the distance from your shoulder to the vertical antenna is what the pitch should pick up. So I can't tune it for somebody else. You have to tune it to yourself, which is really cool. Uh, it was mostly known for being in sci-fi shows and spaghetti westerns. It had that kind of haunting, spacey sound. What really brought it to fame in America was um, a lady named, a Russian lady named Clara Rockmore. And she toured the U.S. playing this theremin in the late 1930s. And she really brought it to the attention of Americans. And I think Joe's going to play a song by her later in the show, spoiler alert, that will kind of show her sound. But uh, it's really, really, really cool. And so it's a very difficult instrument to play. Apparently there's only four, four or five masters, and they're mostly like Eastern European, Eastern European women. And when I say masters, like good enough to play with a symphony or something like that. It kind of fluctuates in and out of popular music. The most famous example is Good Vibrations by the Beach Boys, but that's actually a tannerin. It's not a theremin. A tannerin's kind of like a theremin with training wheels. Like, it's super hard to get the right pitch, so the tannerin, they adapted it so there's 
bigger gaps so it's easier to control and play. The other time people say they know theremin is on the uh, the original Star Trek uh, show. That's not a theremin either. That's um, just different combinations of instruments to uh, make it sound like a theremin. Are there also <laughs> vocals in that Star Trek one? I thought it was. A yeah, there is. There is. Okay. Okay. Combination. It's like of instrument the two and to vocal. Make it sound yeah. Like it. yeah. And they do that kind of oscillating. And so it, it, it does sound a little bit like a theremin, but it really was was big for spaghetti westerns and sci-fi movies and radio shows. So, uh, But it's a super cool instrument, and, and we'll play a song later that also uses it, a pop song later that also uses it. So back to Clara Rockmore. Bob Moog was entranced by her at an early age. He heard Clara Rockmore, and so he with his dad's electronic engineering experience, started putting together these theremin kits at the age of 14. And he started a business when he was a teenager, the R.A. Moog uh, Company, Moog Company, that would help, he would help him pay for his college career. And he would make these, you know, he'd charge $50 and make these theremin kits and send them out. And, uh, you know, people loved it. It was kind of a wave coming across America in the, in the late 30s, early 40s. So he paid for his college career, and he went to Columbia and Cornell, and he eventually ended up with a Ph.D. in engineering physics. And really, the theremin was his first love. During, the, during college in the 50s, he meets this guy, Raymond Scott, who is another uh, early electronic music pioneer. He helps him develop these circuits and schematics for a new type of clavivox, which is sort of a, a theremin with a keyboard. Uh, Raymond Scott having Moog put, help him develop this uh, instrument was a major impact on the idea of developing a synthesizer. Really, the early developmental work on the synthesizer occurred at the Columbia Princeton Electronics Music Center, and he developed what is called a voltage-controlled oscillator. I am going to go ahead and stop right here and tell you that I am not going to get into the details of the electronics and the and the musical sounds. I am, I don't play these synthesizers, and I would make more of a fool of myself by trying to pretend like I did. Uh, we're talking more about kind of like the musical cultural impact of this. The the voltage-controlled oscillator, and he also developed something called the ADSR uh, envelope generator. You know, ADSR is kind of a cool thing. It's kind of one of the things they're known for. It stands for attack, decay, sustain, and release. And it's kind of how the sound comes in. Like attack is like how quick the sound appears, and decay is how quick it fades out. And sustain is how strongly it maintains itself and releases the, at the time you lift off the key. How long does it take for the sound to disappear? So. But at the time, these were these were kind of a big deal. But the biggest deal, I think, is that he would use a keyboard as a controller for these synthesizers, which hadn't been done. He basically used a standard piano-type keyboard, and it allowed users to kind of interface with the synthesizers along with all the different knobs and a lot of the wires that they would plug in and change. These machines were gigantic at the time. They were smaller. He was making them a little bit smaller than they had been in the past because the development of transistors allowed for smaller machines than what they had been using, which was tubes. So they were smaller, cheaper, and more reliable and more controllable controllable by the user, but they're still big machines, you know. They were very complex to operate, and they would take hours to set up a machine to get a sound, and you really had to know what you were doing. To start with... There is very, very few people who could own these synthesizers. It was mostly like educational institutions, some recording studios bought them, and then a handful of audio professionals. But still, 
he would do demonstrations and, and the sound was so cool and they were so much better than the synthesizers that were prior to him uh, developing this that the popularity grew. Now in 67, there was a demonstration at the Monterey Pop Festival and this was like a big moment for these synthesizers to kind of come to to awareness of musicians. So the Birds and Simon and Garfunkel were there, and they directly relate that experience to putting um, some Moog synthesizers in their next albums. So very shortly after Monterey Pop Festival, and some had been doing it before, but that was like the big moment. You'd see these songs popping in on um, recordings. So there's a little bit of discussion on which was the ma- major first pop single that used uh, a Moog synthesizer. The Supreme's Reflection was an early one. The Birds on the Notorious Bird Brothers was a super early one. They messed with Jim Morrison's vocals on Strange Days by The Doors. Mickey Dolan's of the Monkees was a big early proponent and appears on uh, one of their early albums, that Pisces, Capricorn, Aquarium, etc. one. Mm-hmm. George Harrison bought one, like I mentioned earlier, he used for an electronic album. A bunch of uh, tracks on Abbey Road use them. Both Hendrix and Mick Jagger, I think, got them. So musicians were starting to use them in the late 60s. The first like big commercial breakthrough, though, and which really brought it to the American public's eyes, was this album called Switched on Bach. And this album was an album by Wendy Carlos. She uh, she was Walter Carlos uh, back then. She had a gender reassignment surgery since then. But uh, she put out this record working real close with uh, Bob Moog in 68. And she worked, basically did all Bach songs with the with the synthesizer. It was a phenomenon. It was the highest, it was one of the highest selling uh, classical music re- records ever recorded. And it, it started this phenomenon of all these Moog records starting to pop up. I'm going to talk about that a little bit more and play you some clips. But basically, in the late 60s, all of a sudden, the Moog synthesizer was super popular and super hip. And all these strange cover albums, sometimes not cover albums, would pop up. And a lot of them had names like Switched On Rock or Switched On Santa or Switched On Gospel. And so they'd go through all the, based on the popularity of Bach, they'd go through all these different musical styles with these kind of cheesy, schmaltzy synthesizer sounds. There, some of them are very fun. Some of them are kind of crazy. Wendy Carlos would go on to do soundtracks. She did the Clockwork Orange soundtrack and the Shining soundtrack with Stanley Kubrick. And so she was always considered a uh, important person for the electronic music. Another big important contribution to the Moog synthesizer evolution was Keith Emerson of Emerson, Lake, and Palmer. And he purchased a, a modular system. He couldn't put it together, so he had Dr. Moog fly out there and help him put it together. But in doing that, he started help him. They, the, that collaboration helped him start thinking about how can I make a smaller, more stable synthesizer for stage performance. Keith Emerson was one of the big first proponents of, of using it. And for a while there, he took his giant modular synthesizer, which you got to imagine it's probably six feet wide, four feet deep, six feet tall, like a wall of wires. I'll put a picture of it on our internet. Uh, they have an actual replica of it at the Moog store in Asheville. So you Wait, get to see it. You're going to put that on our internet? I said our website, didn't I? No. it's late here all right i'll put it on our internet i mean it's everybody's internet right net neutrality all right 
So I'll put a picture of that on our website. But they have a live replica of, at, at the store in Asheville. But he was a, another big person in this development. What really kind of made uh, Moog synthesizers take off was the development of the Mini Moog, which was introduced in 1970. And this was designed for live performance. It was not as powerful as the big modular ones, but it was highly flexible, easy to use. You could carry it. It was like a briefcase size, portable. It plugged into standard amplification. It was rugged, tough. And so a lot of the, instead of having the patch cords that they had to plug in, they got hardwired with knobs and switches. And, and so this just became, and it was a lot cheaper than these giant things. And so this became the time when people could buy these and use these and tour with them. And that was just giant. They were still expensive. These things were super, super expensive. But like in 1970, a Mini Moog was 1500 And you're talking about the big ones were four or five, you know, up to $10,000. Lots of money. With this invention, the popularity just exploded. And so it basically touched every style of music. In the 70s, you know, you had certainly prog rock and classic rock guys were using it. But, you know, art rock guys were using it. Krautrock, Kraftwerk was a big proponent of it, Audubon is all that. Um, and so that gave way to post-punk and Blondie used it, Devo used it, Synthpop, Gary Newman. And so that whole chain all the way down to we were talking about the rentals, you know, their record, that was all that. But it was also popular with punk, uh, funk bands. Funkadelic used it all the time. And so that would go into the R&B and pop world. Stevie Wonder had a specialized room with a bunch of these modular synthesizers that would surround him and he would pay people to adjust the knobs for him while he played it. Quincy Jones and Michael Jackson used it for all those funky bass lines on Thriller. In a different direction, there was jazz. You know, Sun Ra, he received an early prototype of the Minimog and he would all, he became kind of synonymous with using this instrument after the 70s. Uh, Herbie Hancock used it a lot. Apparently, Tejano music. It's a giant thing in Tejano music. Who knew? Um, it's like what separates... Tejano music from regular or from modern Tejano music without goes without saying electronic music movie soundtrack Hans Zimmer's use it a lot so most areas of music after the 1970s this was a critical you know new development as an instrument that people were using the sound could emulate different instruments but it had its own very unique sound and like I said earlier it's electronic but warm it's not like an off-putting thing it's not just for experimental stuff it can be real funky it can re be real dark it could be kind of brooding but it could also be kind of light and fun so it, it really was a dynamic instrument uh, it got so popular that the american music federation put a ban on all synths because they were afraid it was just going to change how people created and performed music it was taking away the music mus musicianship so to speak uh, but they eventually reversed that decision and kind of did the opposite where they kind of unionized synth players to make it make it like a cool thing uh, so back to bob uh, moog he would continue to innovate. He would sell the, his name and the rights to the company, then buy it back. And he would always be making new things. They eventually went into guitar pedals and all, all sorts of stuff. The, like I said, the main thing is he continued to work with musicians. And so that was where he really never just rested on his laurels. He was always developing new ideas. He moved to Asheville, which is, I'm going to talk about that in a second, but that's where the factory and store are, where you can tour it. He, one of the things he, he talked about later in life, he eventually got to restore one of Claire Rockmore's original theremins, which is like a big, big deal for him. Uh, he, he died in 2005 from an inoperable brain tumor. 
he's just kind of a nerdy science guy. He's not particularly interesting or weird in his personal life. Um, so I didn't really focus on that, but he was certainly influential and just it was fun to kind of learn about him and how many people just idolize him. What I'm going to do now is I'm going to play some clips of different pieces with the Moog synthesizer and we'll talk a little bit about them. Each one of these clips kind of has a little bit of a story behind it. So I played seven clips, uh, 
And the first one is Wendy Carlos. Uh, again, it was released as Walter Coast. That was switched on Bach. One thing that I didn't mention is, for the most part, the Moog synthesizers are monophonic, which means you can only play one note at a time. She had to put together all those different pieces, uh, all those different lines of music individually, if you can imagine that. Uh, you can't play, you basically can't play chords with it. It, it took months and months to develop that sound. And she said it was super hard to get into that idea of only being able to play one line at a time. The second clip was Hal Blaine, and the song was called Love in December. Uh, Hal Blaine was a noted drummer. He's interesting guy, probably worth a, a turntable talk all on his own. He drummed for all sorts of people in L.A. In 65, he put out this album called Psychedelic Percussions. And this is a really early use of the synthesizer. The track featured Paul Beaver, who's pretty much the only Moog pr programmer in the late in LA in the late 60s. And so if you find an album from that time period, he's usually the guy who's in charge of that or was who developed who was programming for that. He uh, had a, another kind of partner guy named Bernie Krauss. And they went on to record one of the first pop commercial electronic music uh, records in 66, which was kind of the forerunner of electronica. The name of the album was The Nun Such Guide to Electronic Music. They were also the two who demonstrated their Moog, the Monterey Pop Festival. They pulled their money and bought it. It turned out to be a very smart move for them because a lot of people wanted to work with them and they had the machine that not many people had. Okay, the third track was Electric Flag with a song called Flash Bam Pow. It's from the uh, 1968 The Trip soundtrack, which was a crazy drug exploitation movie uh, by Roger Corman, written by Jack Nicholson, and starring him and Peter Fonda. The Moog was used in about 150 movie soundtracks from 67 to 70, so it became became very regular to hear in movies, especially movies that wanted to be kind of counterculture and trippy. Again, that was another one that featured uh, Paul Beaver, the guy I mentioned. The next song is Child Herald, it's called Brink of Death. It's a weird, cool garage rock song. I just really like how it sounds. And Wendy Carlos is the one who's playing the synthesizer on it. The track after that was Sun Ra, and the song is called Space Probe. Again, this was made with that prototype Minimoog and pretty out there stuff, uh, as Sun Ra was apt to, to record and release, being that he's not from this planet. The next one after that is one of my favorites. It is Mort Garson, and the name of the song, or it's from an album called Mother Earth's Plantasia. Mort Garson, if you're into this stuff, you need to look up his stuff. He was kind of a legendary producer and artist who used the modular synthesizer. He would just kind of make records for whatever was kind of popular at the time. So he made like 12 astrology records, one for each sign in 67, and they were all with these synthesizers. And then a little bit later when the occult thing was was more uh, hip, I guess you could say. He made uh, a few occult type records. One was called like Black Mass Lucifer. One was called Atraxia, which has some really good stuff. You should look up Atraxia if you get them out. I might put I might put some clips up for that on our internets or interweb, whatever you want to call it. He even did an LP of a couple making love to the sounds of electronic music. That was called Music for Sensuous Lovers. You should not play that one at work. Just go ahead and listen to that one privately at home. But the oddest of the bunch is Plantasia, uh, Mother Earth's Plantasia, and it's described as warm earth music for plants and the people who love them. So he made this uh, Moog synthesizer record that you should play for plants. 
It's kind of a loungy, fun-sounding record. Like a greenhouse grotto. Yes, yes, yes. Uh, just make sure you don't play the uh, love-making one to the plants, because that really confuses them. And the last one is uh, Johan Timmen. It's called A Trip Into the Body. And so it's a, a Moog-heavy story about taking a trip into the human body. It was released in 81, and I think the song is a pretty good example of like kind of where it went, where the, when the sounds got a little bit more complex. So there's more diversity in the instruments. This tried to give you kind of a range of what, what these instruments could sound like. The idea I got for this turntable talk is uh, went to Asheville over Thanksgiving with our mutual buddy and friend of the show, Yetzko, and, uh, and his significant other, Kelly. And we went and toured the, the factory. And they have a great factory. They got a great showroom where you can try out all these instruments. My kids are playing these synthesizers with the headphones on and they're playing the theremin. And Yetzko's actually one who bought me my theremin as a wedding gift for, for Marie and me, my wife and me. And so we've we've enjoyed playing since then we've enjoyed playing it and, and messing around with it. We are not good at it. It's really hard to, <laughs> to make anything that sounds decent. But uh that was kinda how I got into this and I thought he's just such an interesting guy. I mean maybe he's not an interesting guy, but he's got an interesting story, but his impact was so broad and the sound is so cool. If you want to get into the technical aspects, go out there on the internet and you can read all about the technical aspects. I'm just not gonna be able to explain them to you where exactly did the keytar fit in did he, he did make a keytar it's did. not okay i wasn't yeah, sure about yeah that. yeah he was pretty um susceptible to the trends of the time he was a he was a um image maker and the image taker okay is that a saying it is now that's probably going to be your new intro. Uh, <laughs> it's got to be better when I add. <laughs> oh, one thing about the, you know, the theremin you mentioned that he built, Clara Rockmore's old theremin. That that theremin was actually built originally by theremin for Clara Rockmore. And it was modified, unlike any other theremin, he modified it so it would reach different octaves than any other theremin. Theremin did? Yeah. Wow. He and, he and Clara Rockmore were, were really close. There was an interview I read with her and Bob Moog, and he asked her about Theremin, and she just went off about what a charming, talented person he was. He was a genius, and he just did all these wonderful things. One time he made her a birthday cake that when she went into the room, it was just a nice cake, and as she got closer, it would light up, and music would start playing just as she got closer to it. He would just do all these strange inventions all over the place, and he invented other items too. One of them was so that babies wouldn't be abducted. He made this invention that... If somebody got too close to the crib or leaned into a crib, noises would go off. Like he had all these kind of weird alarm systems he would make for people. According to Clara Rockmore, I don't, I did not look into this more than her interview and she might have been alone. I don't know. But she said that he actually created, he made a TV before there was a TV. Really? But only by a couple, couple years. So it might have already been pretty close elsewhere. All right. I think we need to play some songs. I'm going to pick up uh, with the first track today, right from where you left off, with a theremin song. So this one is by Clara Rockmore. It's off her only album from 1977 called The Art of the Theremin, and the song is called Valse Sentimental, and it's actually a Tchaikovsky song. So here you go.
that was Clara Rockmore again uh, on, on the theremin with her sister Nadia playing piano. The song is Tchaikovsky's Valse Sentimental. I, that, I'm probably totally butchering that, but that's Clara Rockmore. She was kind of a national sensation and brought the theremin into uh, people knew what it was because of her and her, her performances. And she was very good friends with theremin and they used to hang out all the time. They were very, very close. She only made one album and it was in 1977, produced by Bob Bogue and uh, his wife, Shirley. And it was, the the copy that I have is on Mississippi Records, which we've talked about quite a bit. I am also going to play a song that features a theremin, uh, but in a very different way. So I'll go ahead and play my song, and then we'll talk about it. Right, that was a song called Electricity by Captain Beefheart and his Magic Band. This has always been one of my favorite uh, Captain Beefheart songs. 
Joe recently um, shared with me the Trout Mask Replica 33 and a third book that we've talked about before, and I read it up. I think I was waiting for my oil to get changed. I read most of it in that in that time. It turned my heart into a Beefheart or something. But so I've been really, really into Captain Beefheart since then, and in particular this record. And on this record, I think this song is my favorite. Uh, the record is Safe as Milk. It came out in 67 on Buddha Records. Uh, Electricity is this kind of unnerving, psychedelic blues song. And from what I was reading about it in that 33 and a third, Don Van Vliet, Captain Beefheart, wanted this theremin to make his voice sound more buzzing. And so they had tried to play the theremin to match how he was singing. So it was kind of like a competition between the two. During the recording of the song, he blew out a $1,200 Telefucan microphone when he was on the song this song especially out of all the songs it was really more of a precursor for trout mass replica because the rhythm guitar parts he would sing them to john french who was playing drums to duplicate to make the drums sound like a rhythm guitar and that's a very as i read in the 33 and a third he had the strangest ideas on how to explain how to how to explain how people should play the music which make no sense to me but he would just go off on things. Part of that was because he couldn't read music himself, so he had to, needed a translator. And he had screwed up ideas in his head, which worked out beautifully. Yeah, he sounds like a crazy mean guy. And, <laughs> in fact, this song is kind of a divisive song for a few reasons. He was dropped from a, a label he was already signed to. Him and the Magic Band were signed to A&M Records. The co-owner of the label heard the song and just thought it was just super negative and weird, and he didn't want his teenage daughter to listen to it. It was also the song that he was, uh, they were performing at the Fantasy, Fantasy Fair and Magic Mountain Festival in 67, and at some point during the song, Leafheart just stopped, he straightened his tie, and he walked off stage, like walked off the high stage and landed f- uh, flat face right onto the grass. And he said that he, he must have been on, on mushrooms or tripping or LSD or something. He saw a girl in the audience turn to a goldfish. And Ry Cooter, who was the guitar player of the Magic Band at that time, quit immediately. As soon as that happened, he quit. <laughs> uh, uh, just couldn't deal with how Beefheart was, was acting. He ended up doing okay for himself. Yeah, he, he did fine. He did fine. And, and uh, Captain Beefheart did fine, too. So really fun song. Great use of a theremin. Beats the hell out of good vibrations, if you ask me. But all right. So I have a little bit of a theme going, more of a theme. My second song is called The Electrician, and it is by the Walker Brothers. Let me go ahead and play it. Slow. When 
Okay, so that was the Walker Brothers with The Electrician. The album that came off was, was called Night Flights, and that came out in 78. Uh, this, this album is a very interesting story. It was the last studio album by the American pop group The Walker Brothers, and it was well past their prime. It was 78. The Walker Brothers were popular in the 60s. The way they did the album was they divided up into three parts. So Scott Walker got the first four, then John Walker got four, and then Gary Walker got two. They're not really brothers, but anyways, that's how they divided it up. Stepping back, Scott Walker's commercial career wasn't doing very good at the end. People weren't buying his records at all. He made some kind of weird records after his his series of Scott records. He had even more records that just weren't selling. So he joined his brothers, and you know, brothers in quotations, to make some easy listening records, and they have him singing like Chris Christopherson and Randy Newman covers and crap like that. So he was contractually obligated to do one more record. So the record company was basically like, well, you guys can write your own songs. So Scott Walker decides to write these four songs that are just amazing avant-garde synth dark pop. I don't know how to describe them. They're like the perfect bridge between his brooding ballad past and the avant-garde stuff he would do in the later part of his career. And still doing. Yeah, yeah. And so... It's coming out at the same time as like Berlin era Bowie or like Iggy Pop's The Idiot, and it had the same sound. It sounds like somebody like breaking from commercial restraints. It is just the strangest four songs. And the best part is, you got these great, strange four songs, and then the rest of the album that was written by the other two guys are just kind of like adult contemporary stuff. Not horrible, but nothing you would ever care about. If they were just put out by some no-name band, it would just be forgotten. <laughs> it makes you wonder, like, what would have happened if he would have had a whole album at that point, if they would have given him a whole album. But anyways, it's I'd rather have four songs on an album than not have any. The Electrician is... <laughs> it's a strange song. It's it's about the right the right wing regimes of Chile and Argentina and how they would use electricity to torture people. And so it's just dark, and, but kind of kind of sexy too. I don't know. It's uh, and it got that drone with the synthesizer. I don't know if it was a Moog or not. But then it would give way to the strings and flamenco guitar. It's. I mean, you heard the song, so I don't. I don't know if I can describe it. Uh, if I'm gushing a little bit, I think this is probably one of my top ten songs of all time. I've loved this song for a long time. I was very happy to finally get a reissue of it on on uh, on record. So Brian Eno at one point said that these four songs were like kind of set the standard for experimentalism that modern pop music has yet to surpass. I mean, that's coming from Brian Eno. So uh, Midge Uri uh, claimed that the song inspired him to read, uh, write Ultravox's Vienna, which was a big, um, big song for the big, big start for the synth pop movement. That uh, was used as an, an opening track in a movie called Bronson. So, like I said, I just I really love that song. It's it's just a, a song that resonates with me. So, and had I had a third song, the third song would have been Gary Newman and the Two Way Armies, Our Friends Electric. So you'd have had Electricity, The Electrician, and Our Friends Electric, which. Um, that song is about Gary Newman discovering the Mini Moog in a studio, and so he'd kind of been his band had been more punk, like a straight punk band, but he got entranced with the Moog synthesizer, and that's how he became the Gary Newman that we know and love. 
So that's uh, I didn't play the song, but you should go up and play it on YouTube or whatever. And that's my trilogy of electricity songs. That's funny because my next song is uh, from the Electric Boogaloo soundtrack. <laughs> my my next song, I'm going to go ahead and play it now, and then we'll talk about it after. I don't want to uh, I don't want you to turn it off because of who it's by before you even hear it. So I'm going to play it now. have changed around here since you're gone lamps don't shine as bright and the tv won't go on pictures on the wall seem to hide their faces and i can't find a smile around here in any place yes the things in this house miss you just as much as i the only difference is they That was The Things in This House from 1964 on Capitol Records by Bobby Darin, of all people. It's a song that I don't think a lot of people know at all, whether they're fans of his or not. And I think it's a really nice country song. Sorry to move away from the Moog sound, uh, but I've been I've been kind of waiting to play this since we started this show. Um, I love this song. There's not a whole lot to say about it. It's very simple. It's very easy to, to understand. It's There's just not a whole lot there. There's not a lot of depth, and yet... It's a great song. Like there's a lot, there's a lot in there, uh, and everybody can relate to it, basically. Yeah, real simple I think country it, song by Bobby. It's Darryl. got one of my favorite lines: "Is can't find you in this old dictionary." There you go. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. I've like, yeah, put that on mixes for me before. It is a great song. That's is a lot it, of fun. Was it just a single, or was it on an album, or what? Just a single. That's it. Only it was the it was an A side. Yeah, I don't think it charted. I couldn't find any any evidence of it ever actually charting. He wrote the song. Um, he didn't. I don't think he wrote a ton of songs himself, but he wrote that one. And I just happened upon it one day in a when I was buying records in the probably in the eighties, nineties maybe. And it was I loved it ever since. All right, I think we need to. Uh, I think we got some unfinished business with some trivia. Oh yes, we do. Okay. <laughs> So, let's get back to that. I'm going to go ahead again and play these one more time for everybody. All I need is the name of the show that they were the theme of. Track one. Track two. 
first one is definitely Rockford Files. It is. Greatest theme song of all time, yes. Yeah, that's a great song. The second one, this is a guess. Is it the theme from, um, oh gosh, I I wrote it down. Uh, Is it Dark Shadows? It is not. It's the British, this is, it's a British mystery show, which you were uh, ragging on me about earlier, but it's called Midsummer Murders. Okay, okay. Okay. Yeah, you do like that one. Uh, The third one, I think, is the middle of the Doctor Who theme. It is, yes. Okay. From yeah, this uh, I don't know which remember which year that was, but it was the one, the guy with the trench coat and scarf. That yeah, movie. yeah. I think they changed it slightly for each one. I wouldn't have got that if you asked me which doctor it was, but whatever. The fourth one, I don't have any any clue. You you shouldn't. Nobody got this. I would have been the the only one that would have gotten this one. This is from the game show Joker's Wild. Joker, Joker, Joker. Oh, I love that. Okay, and it has a <laughs> wonderful theme. It, okay. it, it was fun. I did yeah, like so, the song. Yeah, it's real peppy. But I, I knew I knew when I heard it, I had no, I had, I, I don't know if I'd heard that before. Well, but I have to, I have to always get one in there that nobody can get. Yeah, make yourself feel big. Okay, yeah. the last song was one of my favorite TV shows, Night Gallery yeah, by Rod, of, Rod Serling's Night Gallery. Yeah, one of my favorite shows of all time too. When I first got an iPhone with all the power and capability that it had, the first thing I did was make that as my ringtone. That that's night pretty thing. good. I yeah, like it was that. really good. All right, well, that's our show. I hope everybody enjoyed it. Uh, as always, go out and support music. Go buy some records this week. Hey, treat yourself. You've earned it. Go buy a record, that expensive record that you've been wanting. Buy the one up on the wall. That's the good one. Always <laughs> yeah. look for the one on the wall. That's all right. You may never see that record again, so go ahead and buy it. Or go to a show. Go to two shows. Just do something that helps uh, support the music industry. Uh, Joe's going to tell you about our social media now. Please, like us on Facebook. We have a Facebook page that we update a lot. We have a Twitter feed that we try to update a lot. And we would love it if you were on there and communicating with us, commenting. It would be really helpful. Also, if you get a chance, put a review up on iTunes so other people have a chance to hear it. They might like it. The Twitter handle is Highway Hi-Fi Pod. All right. Well, I hope you all have a wonderful uh, whatever amount of time between now and the next time you hear us.
It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. 